Okay, so this is um, the second part of a series called How to Think Like a Brisker. Um, and my ambition is that it's actually the concluding part of at least this, uh, this section. Um, what I'm trying to do is on the one hand, try and introduce you to some of the categories of risk. And at the same time, I'm trying to argue that they are parallel to some analytic philosophy type questions. Uh, and even though brisk itself, um, brisk itself often, uh, or at least the way the Rove presented brisk, and I think internally in, in some of the issue as well, they sort of present themselves as anti-metaphysical in a sense. I'm um, trying to argue that they actually do deal with, um, with those sorts of issues. Um, so I'm gonna do briefly is to sum up what we did last time and then move, uh, move in um, ideally at very high speed, just warning. Um, and I'll, I'll try and read the chat and, um, and stop, stop for questions, most likely uh, not too often before the end. Okay, so we started last time by just pointing out that there are at least two places in the liturgy where the body is presented as a spiritual actor, um, right? Right, where the prayer is in the first person for the body. And I argued that really you can think of um, three, three different subjects um, for religious action in, um, in, in halacha. You can uh, talk about the body, the mind or the soul, roughly, um, roughly speaking. And then what I tried to do was to set up a taxonomy of, um, of uses of the term kavana, and to some degree to try and coordinate them with, um, with those categories. So you have on screen at, right at the end, at the end of um, last time we had uh, come up with just based on Rashi's interpretation of, of a single sugi, although the sugi appears in two different places, at least part of it. We had come up with five kinds of kavana. Um, so we might call what this book says we'll call ultimate kavana, uh, which is kavana letzeta mitzvah, when you do an action with intent to fulfill one's obligation, right? So I call this an intentional physical, intellectual, religious, and legal act, right? So you have four different, four different spheres. You intend to do the action. You know what action you intend to do, right? You know that that action has, uh, has a, religious, uh, a religious frame, and you intend to fulfill the specific a religious obligation. Then there's kavana l'shem ha-mitzvah, which has all those, but not necessarily the legal, right, the legal act of fulfilling an obligation. You may not intend that. Um, then, um, then you have, um, make sure I missed somebody. Okay. Right, then you have kavana l'krut b'terab almana. Remember, we were dealing in the, the sugi was dealing with the specific question of how you, whether you fulfill the mitzvah of kriyachma, in the context of reading Torah. So we could say that you just have the intention to read Torah. So I'm gonna assume by here that, um, that what we say by read Torah means you know that the text you are reading is the text of Torah. It doesn't mean that you have intention to fulfill the mitzvah of reading Torah, that would be one level up. So you just have it, you have an intention to read, you know what it is you're reading. So I call it a physical intellectual act. There's Kavadali Krut, where you have intention to read, but you don't necessarily know what you're reading. And then there was a level below that, which was kare lahagia, which is when you're engaged in the activity of proofreading, but the, the lowest level, the way Rashi defined it in one place is you're engaged in the activity of proofreading, but you don't intend to vocalize, right? You just happens, and in the context of proofreading, you sometimes, right, you sometimes say it out loud. Um, and the question that I'm leaving um, for a little bit later is when I talk about unconscious activity, so there are ways in which an activity can be unintended because unconscious, but there are two other ways, right? It can be unintentional 
in a sense that you that you intended to do something else and you did this by mistake. Um, and the other possibilities you can be compelled by others to do an action, and so that may not be intentional, and that can be by threat, which probably does not remove the intentionality of the action, or it can be just by physical compulsion. Okay, those were the um, those were the um, the five categories of kona we came up with last time. We will expand that range uh, that range today. Now, the specific context that we were addressing is a sugya which appeared to draw a comparison between a claim that uh, between the, the question of blowing shofar for the purposes of producing music and being forced to eat matzah. And the um, right so in the sugya, Rava says that since Shmuel's father said that if you're compelled to eat matzah, that you're yotze, therefore if you blow shofar for music, you're yotze. And it seemed like those two are connected, but the Gemara asks the question, why isn't Rava's statement obvious? In order to explain why Rava's statement isn't obvious, the Gemara then constructs a Havamina, which would explain why you, you might think that you were Yotze in the Matza case, but not Yotze in the uh, Shofar case. Right? We pointed out that in the text that we have, it's not clear whether the, um, the result is to say that, ah, Matza is the usual case, but Shofar is exceptional. Shofar is the usual case, but matzah is exceptional, or that each of them have unique characteristics, and we can't derive from either of the cases what the general rule is that whether the Kavanah discussion is one that is required for all mitzvot. Okay, we notice the Rambam, however. The Rambam seems um, to contradict himself, um, but really what the Rambam does is the Rambam seems to have mechanically arrived at the conclusion that we paskin like uh, we paskin that shofar does require kavana against Rava, but we also paskin like Shmuel's statement that matzah does not. Right? So the Rambam in Hilchot Shofar, um, right, the Rambam in Hilchot Shofar said, Everybody has to, everybody, both the Mashmiya and the Shomea, both the blower and the listener have to have kavana latzeit, right? They have to have the highest level of kavana. When it comes to eating matzah, he says, oh, look at that. So how do we resolve this contradiction between Shofar and Chameitz? So we looked at last time at a solution of the Ran, which is uh, cited by the Kesed Mishnah. And what the Ran said is that the, the unique case, um, or at least that, that the standard rule is that mitzvot do require Kavana, but that matzah is unique because matzah allows you to get Hana'ah, you get benefit from it. And because and because you get hana'ah by matzah, therefore ma, therefore matzah does not require the kavana that we require by shofar. So I argued at the end of last year. This was the the end of last year, um, with you know a certain amount of of uh, unavoidable arrogance, that I for the life of me I can't understand how the Ron and the Kesefishin could have said this, because laniyadati it seems to be a category error, and the reason is that what is that um, the the Iran gets Hana'ah from a Gemara quoted by Rashi, which says that if you're mit asik, uh, then you are chayav. Okay, so now I tried to set up here a taxonomy that might or might not work of uh, that parallels Kavanah by Averut to Kavanah by Mitzvot. Okay, so Kavanah let's say ta mitzvah, where right? you have physical, intellectual, religious, and legal cognizance, is if you violate an action that carries a punishment with full acknowledgement not only that it's a violation, but that you know what the punishment is and that you legitimate the punishment. That's what we call matiras modamita, 
uh, right? The classic case is you violate a, death, a, a capital crime. In order to be punished, you have to show not only that you intentionally violated it, but they ask you, did you intend, uh, they ask you, did you intend to, um, to did you know that, did you know that uh, this carries a death penalty? And you responded, yes, I know it, and that's why I'm doing it, okay? So that's the ultimate type of kavana by a, um, by a, um, by, um, by Averot. Then there's Mazid. What happens if you do it um, deliberately, right? So that's a physical, intellectual, religious act. You know what you're doing. Um, you understand what you're doing. And you understand that what you're doing is a violation of halakha. Then there's Shogeg, where you know what you're doing. Um, and you intend to do it. But you don't know that it violates the law. Okay, it does, you, don't have, you don't have criminal intent, um, right? Criminal religious intent. Then there's Mitasek. Uh, right, and the relation and onus, which are two categories that are a little bit more complicated, that seem to be ways in which you are, in some sense, disassociated from the act. Okay, so the question is, um, how does that happen? So the the the, um, the, Rans, the Gemara says that if you're mitasek, which means that you don't really have intent to do it in some sense, so a mitasek can turn you can turn you into a shogeg. Right, it's an action which ordinarily would view you as disassociated from. It's not even really, right? It's not even really you doing it. But if you derive benefit, so then we treat you as a shogeg. So what does that mean? It means that we treat you as if you intended to do the act. In our categories, we say is that deriving benefit means that your body has a relationship to the action, which makes sense. It doesn't mean right, that it doesn't mean that your mind understands what you're doing, and therefore. You can't move it right, or certainly it can't mean that you can't replace religious. Um, sorry, you can't replace religious intent. So therefore, there's no way that Hana'ah could turn a mitasek into a mazid. Can't do it. All it can do is get your brain, is get your body, and maybe your mind um, connected to it as well, because you know what you're doing if you right, if you have an experience. So you can't deny the reality of the experience. And therefore, since the Ramam says that, that says in Hilchot Shofar. That um, that what is necessary is kavanah latzeit. You have to have religious and legal intention. Um, the Rans claim that matzah could be like shofar on the basis of uh, hanaah seemed to me a fundamental error. However, I should say that although this is not, I think, possibly pshat in the Rambam, and it's not pshat in the Ran either, we could, for practice, we could construct a position that looks very much like the Ran, because it really depends what we mean by um, we said when Shmuel said that if we coerce you to eat matzah, if they coerce you to eat matzah, if you know, Persian marauders for some reason break into your house on the first night of Pesach and compel you to eat matzah, so there are two ways of understanding that. One way, which seems to be the way the Ramam describes it, uh, it says a chal matzah below kavana, is if they point a gun at you and force you to eat it. Um, right. So then, right. So your 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 intention is not to eat it for the sake of the mitzvah. Your intention is to eat it because otherwise they'll shoot you. Okay, so in those, so the Raman says you fulfill your obligation anyway, and that cannot be resolved by Hana'ah. But there is another theoretical way of understanding compulsion, um, which is to say maybe they stuff it down your mouth. But either way, here's what I want to suggest. It's possible to say what happens if somebody, what happens in a case where somebody is stuffing matzah into my mouth, and I am deriving benefit from it. And as I'm deriving benefit, I intend to fulfill the mitzvah. Because why not? If they're going to stuff matzah down my throat anyway, 
I might as well, right? I might as well fulfill the mitzvah, right? I'm not anti-religious. I was going to eat the matzah a little bit later, right? But, you know, let's, let's suppose, right? You know, that the bandits break in and horror of horrors, they are forcing me to eat matzah, uh, right, before Kiddush. Okay, right, right. So I'm gonna eat matzah before Kiddush now, or be, right, or you know, or uh, before whatever the brachos the brachos are supposed to be. So now there's a case where we'd say, aha, now I have I don't have I don't have physical intention, but I could have full intellectual, religious, and legal intention. So we could say that the resolution is that there are circumstances where the only kind of kavana you're missing is the bodily kavana, and in those sorts of cases. So if you get benefits, so that solves it, right? So we could, if, if the Raman had only explained meaning that you were not, you, it was not your choice to eat, but knowing that you were going to eat, you in fact had full religious intention, that would explain how a case which would otherwise be mitasek actually enable you to fulfill the mitzvah in the same way as shofar um, with, full, with full kavana. Unfortunately, it seems to me that that is not at all the meaning of the Ramam. The simple statement of the Ramam is that Kavanah here means the same thing that Kavanah does here, which means that the Ramam means we eat matzah without intention to fulfill the obligation, in which case it seems to me that Hana'ah is irrelevant. Okay, so given that, now we, right, we still have the, the, we still have to figure out how does the Ramam differentiate between the case of Shofar and the case of matzah. So I want to complicate this a little bit uh, by introducing um, three other texts. Okay, text, um, if, I guess it's four other texts. Uh, okay, text number one. Akareya de Megillah below Kavana lo yatsa, Kesariya kudva udursha u magia, im kiven libo latsait bikriazu yatsa, im lo kiven libo, presumably latsait, lo yatsa. Okay, so the Ram here seems to take the same position by Megillah as he does by Shofar which is that we require Kavanah Latzeit. So for now, we can put Megillah and Shofar in the same, um, in the same boat. Okay, now he goes on, and now we have Hilchot Tfilah. So in Perik Dal of Hilchot Tfilah, the Ramah says, Kavanah Lev Ketzat. So this is a new kind of, right, Kavanah is called Kavanah Halev. We haven't seen anything explicitly described as Kavanah Halev so far. Kol Tfilah she'ena b'chavanah, e'na Tfilah. Okay, a tefillah without kavanah is not tefillah. So that's interesting language as well. He doesn't say lo yatsa. He says a not tefillah. So far, all he's ever said by Megillah, by Shofar, um, right? It was all a question of whether you, you had kavanah to be yotze and are you yotze. By Masa, you don't have kavanah to be yotze and yet you're yotze. By tefillah, he says, if you daven without kavanah, kavana, meaning kavanah halev, it's not tefillah. And if you daven without kavanah, then you have to go so you have to daven again um, with Kavanah. Okay, that's interesting. But then in, in chapter 10, the Ramam says, somebody who prayed without Kavanah, so this is exactly what he said in Perik Dalet. But now he says something interesting. But if you have Kavanah in, for the first bracha, then you don't need to anymore. So that's an interesting thing, right? Why is that? If really, if if tefillah without kavanah is not tefillah, why should tefillah for the first bracha count? And why is this idea introduced by tefillah, which in you know he didn't mention that when it came to shofar that you have to have kavanah for the first half second. I right? didn't mention by megillah that you have to have kavanah for the first pasuk. So why does he introduce 
this distinction specifically by tefillah. Okay. And then we'll also notice that by Kriyashma, the Rabbim says the following, So now Kriyashma is parallel to tefillah, it only requires the first pasuk. That's very odd. Now here again, we're talking about Kavanat HaLev. We don't know if Kavanat HaLev is equivalent to any of the five kinds of Kavanat we had so previously. Previously, right? Okay, so there, so Tvila and Kriyachma have these odd things that a Kavana at the beginning is enough for the whole, and there's a particular interesting language of this called Kavana Halev, and there's also one other sort of interesting language which is Kol Tvila Sheina Bechavana, Eina Tvila, which is not language that shows up in any of the others. Okay, so in our heads, we should remember we have five cases. We have Megillah, Shofar, Matzah, Tefillah, and Kriyachma. Uh, in all of them, except for Matzah, the Ramam seems to think that Kavana is necessary. But in uh, two of them, Shofar and Megillah, he is explicit that the Kavana that is necessary is Kavana um, Latzait. But in, in, in two of them, he talks about Kavanah Halev as opposed to Kavanah Latzit. All right, so now we're going to try and figure out if we can, right, what we, what we can do with this. Um, starting, remember that we have our five types of Kavanah, um, and we may discover that there are, right, as I was just saying, the five types of Kavanah, we basically divided into Kavanah that relate to the body, that's four and five, Kavanah that relates to the mind, that's um, three, and maybe, uh, three and maybe two is part of that, and then Kavanah relates to the soul, which is one and two. All right, that's the basic of the way we, we we tiered them. So now we'll try and we'll try and see that there are more complicated notions of Kavanah, and um, and I'll have to figure out how that complicates our whole scheme, uh, in terms of um, both halacha and in terms of what it says philosophically about the nature of mitzvah. Okay, we're going to start with a sorry tshuva of Rabbi Abraham ben Harambam. Okay, Rabbi Abraham is the Rambam's son. Um, probably, some of you know, right, that the Rambam writes very, very nice things about him in one of his uh, one of his letters. Um, but he does not seem to have been quite like his father. Uh, right, the scholarship now on uh, is you know shows the way in which he relates. Sorry, I keep, keep skipping this. The way in which he relates to uh, local Muslim and Sufi thinkers, and how different that is from his father is not clear. He does not acknowledge any difference from his father. Um, and so that's a very challenging notion to figure out how exactly he relates philosophically to his father. But halakhically, on the whole, right, he tends to support his father. But sometimes philosophy and halakha intersect. Um, and again, he's always going to present himself, so far as I can tell, as following in his father's footsteps. He doesn't acknowledge, he doesn't allow there to be space between them. So here's the question. Right? He has a book, right, it's called Milcham Hashem, which is attempts to defend his father Against the att- right, against attacks on the Mishnah Torah. So the question is, So why are Shofar Megillah set out as unique in terms of Kavana? Follow Amru and he quotes the Gemara Psachim. Mitzvah ain't srichot Kavana. So if the general rule is Mitzvah ain't srichot Kavana, why does the Rama make Shofar and Megillah unique? So that's an assumption, right? We set aside because we don't know which side is unique. Uh, the Ron explained the Rama is saying that Matzah was unique and Shofar and Megillah were the standard. Rabbi Avraham and Rama sets out the question as assuming 
that the standard is the matzah case, and the question is why are shofar and megillah different? Because here he says, If you want to ask what's the difference between shofar and megillah and the other mitzvot, this is a deep question. But this is a question on the Gemara, not on my father, because the Gemara also presents Rabbi Zera as saying that Kavana is necessary for, uh, for Shofar. Okay, that's not such a great defense. But okay. After my father died, this is just one of the things that bothered me. I wish I'd asked it. I never got to ask it. Until I found a reason. Here's what his reason is. The mitzvahs that we say do not require kavana. These are mitzvot that are fulfilled by doing something that we describe that we consider to be an act. Shagufo where the the body, so to speak, right? Uh, which you know, for our purposes is a pun, right? The body of such action. That is the mitzvah. For example, eating, or immersing, or reading. Right? All these are physical acts, and the physical act is the mitzvah. And so why would you, you don't require any kind of intent beyond the physical act and intention to perform the physical act. So you're not a right? So all we need is body, right? Is the body in, doing the action at the direction of the mind. Aval shofar megillah, but shofar megillah are different. Why? The mitzvah of Shofar Megillah is listening. If you don't have intention, what have you done? Okay, so he says listening per se is not an act. And a mitzvah has to have an act. Now, in regular mitzvot, the actor can be the body because all you require is an act. But there are mitzvot that involve hearing. Hearing is not a physical act. We can, you know, impose modernity on this. Hearing is fundamentally an interpretational act. So if you don't engage, in, if you don't interpret it properly, then what have you done? What have you done? Um, now the interpretation, he's saying, right, this is going to require a kavanah mitzvah, right? So he's going to claim that kavanah latzeit is what transforms listening, which is a fundamentally passive experience, into an active experience. But when it comes to immersing and uh, immersing and things, all right, and, and things like that, um, even without Kavani, you've already fulfilled it. And that's also true by Megillah, like listening to Shofar. Now we try something very clever. It says, and how do you know this? If you read the Raman carefully, right, he says it's only the listener who has to be Yodzeit. Unlike Shofar, he thinks, the Raman thinks that if somebody reads Megillah, however, you can be Yodzeit as long as you, as you are the only one who has, um, who has intent. So he doesn't explain why Shofar and Megillah are different that way. Yeah, so this is another truth. What about Kriyachma? Hang on a sec. Kriyachma, uh, we said you have to have at least Kavana for the first bracha. So where did you get this from? Kriyachma, 
Um, so it could be kavanah achat, that's the text we have, which means they require the same kavanah, or it could be it's rechat kavanah acheret, and it's a typo, in which case it means they need a, they, they need a different kind of kavanah than the kind of kavanah we're speaking for, and therefore, by Kriyat Shema, if you just have intention to read, you're Yotze in terms of the standard kavanah latzeit, but there's some additional kavanah that is necessary as well. I, I would like it if somebody could find me evidence that it should say acheret instead of achat, but I don't have any such... I don't have any such evidence. Could it be um, yeah. that Achad is referring is referring specifically to um, God and the fact that God is one, right? Because we create that we're doing Kriyatshma in the first the first uh, sentence. It's nice. Grammatically, it's hard to say Kavanah Achad means that. Yeah. Uh, it would be Kavanah Achad, I think. Okay. I think. It would be a typo. You know, I've written recently against prescriptivist grammar, specifically on gender issues, but uh, that's a push. That's a push to me. It's very clever, but it's a push to me. And the same thing for tefillah, right? You you you're, you have to be you have to be in the presence of God, right? So the the idea is that God is one. Yeah, I mean, I, so you as another, it's a way of getting to a cheret without saying, right? Without 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 having theme end, right? So right, so I'm in, in favor of it. On the other end. I think you have to amend the chad to a chad anyway, so I think it's pushing it. Um, okay, so I think right that on the chat it was pointed out correctly that I'm fudging in a sense, or Ramadan Ram is fudging, because why don't we say that intention that you know that understanding what you're hearing is enough to make it an action, right? And right, intention to fulfill the mitzvah, it right should be a step beyond that. That's right. You should you should be able to have an action. Without that, he seems to be arguing that inter- even interpretation is not is still a passive experience. That's you know we could get into all sorts of um, discussions of semiotics and hermeneutics, right? All sorts of right, what exactly is involved. I agree it's a weakness. I agree it's a weakness that that in Rabbi Ramad Ramos' ex- uh, explanation, uh, and he tells you that he never asked his father this question, so we don't know this is what his father meant. It's just the an early attempt at explaining it. By claiming, but what's, what matters to me right now is his notion that a mitzvah has to be a religious act. Now, we could ask all sorts of questions about that, which, you know, show up later, which is, what about, what, what about a lotase? Right, so can you fulfill a lotase? The whole point of lotase is who didn't act. Um, right, so you can certainly do things that are religiously meaningful without um right without without an action so we could say okay but these are mitzvot say so mitzvot say definitionally involve an action okay but that's circular right Dude, that depends on what we think right we think of as action so i think remember ram offered you know and i think his his explanation of megillah is something of a push his explanation of kriyachma i don't know uh yeah i'm not sure exactly what he's saying in tefila um i think that his focus on the um, the definition of action is valuable, and his shift to making uh, matzah paradigmat uh, the standard case and shofar and megillah the exceptional case is also something of value that we have to take into place. Okay, now it happens that while um, Rabbi Raman Ram did not speak to his father about this, and, and I apologize, this is this was off my old source sheet. I haven't looked it up yet, but in an issue of Tarbits, the uh, Israeli Jewish Studies Journal. I believe it was Shammai Friedman, but I'm not entirely sure. Maybe I'm wrong. No, that doesn't sound right. So I don't remember who it was anymore. That's my fault. Violation of Omer Devar B'Shem Amro. 
um, somebody published what they described as some, as um, they found in the Geniza, somebody's notes from the Rambam's shir. Uh, right? Somebody sat in the Rambam's shir. You know, there's lots. Of, you know, and took notes. These are not the the notes. You know, that he scrambled that are scribbled down and you know, scribbled down and shir with the doodles on the side. Right? These are sort of formal formal notes. Somebody took full of high praise to the teacher and all sorts of things like that. Now we don't know the Rambam looked over these notes. And uh, right, all of you know that you know that if I asked each of you to write up this year afterwards, there would be some differences afterwards, and some of you would get it, you know, exactly what I intended, and some of you not. So we can't tell you this is what the Rama meant, but it's cool that we have notes of the Rama Shir, uh, right? And it seems like Rabbi Verman Rama had a point. Seriously, so right? right? You can see these are not so so informal notes. Um, and here the notes a little bit less clear. Right, so there is this is the the grab bag in this vote, right? Sorry, those are the ones those are the ones that are debur. He, he doesn't give an example of masa. Seems like it's a little the word vishmasa might have been added added. All right, I think everything will flow smoothly if we just put vishmasa in parentheses. And for all we know, that's my transcription error because I haven't gone back to the original Tarbiz article. Right, all our standard mitzvot say. So The Ramam claimed that speech, this is not the same way as Rabbi Ram and Ramam talked about listening. But in the notes that Ramashir said that speech per se is not an action. Now, this is a challenging question all through rabbinic literature whether Dibur is a Maseh or is it not a Maseh and in what context. But the Ramam says, Avudat Hashem, the Dibur, requires a Maseh. Dugmalakach. Imamarta Shema Yisrael, Kevan Shamarta Shema, once you see the word Shema, Tarikhata lafnot et kavnatcha, but chashivatcha, the mashmaut Shema. You have to write. You have to turn your intention and your thoughts to the right to the meaning of the word Shema, the Kach Pasuk, and similarly to the rest of that Pasuk. Okay, so he thinks that the Rambam right, he agrees with Rabbi Raman Rambam's later reconstruction, that the core question is the need for a Maseh. But he doesn't define the maaseh, the thing that needs a maaseh is shmiyah, as opposed to Rabbi Avraham and Rambam. He says it's the dibur that requires a maaseh, and the maaseh that re, that is required by a dibur is right is intel, right is some kind of you know, collection of, of concentration, which he defines right because they weren't so into difference between mind and soul really. All right. Right, so we have all sorts of interesting challenges here, right? Because we're not the mind the mind soul distinction is not really present here. Um, right? It's really it's it's a single notion of consciousness in some way. And it says that speech by itself is not an action, but speech combined with religious intention becomes an action, and whereas matzah becomes the standard physical act, physical acts don't require uh, don't require any kind of intellectual um, intellectual component, and that could be that we have, you know, we have, um, you know, a, a scheme in which some the purpose of some mitzvot is simply to train the body to behave properly, 
And the purpose of other mitzvot is to train the mind to have right, to have uh, to have true opinions. So mitzvot, right? So, but it's not clear then why the word maaseh has such central categories. I could claim that mitzvot of the mind require an intellectual act, right? That would be a way of framing it. But he doesn't say it that way. He says speech. So legalists um, will tend not to give that such philosophic uh, consequence. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what the Rambam. I don't know what the Rambam meant because I, I don't have direct access to the Rambam. Um, but here we have two different framings. Each of these framings take um, take matzah as the standard, and assume that there's something about certain kinds of lesser actions that cannot doesn't allow them to become either formal legal mitzvot or avodah Hashem. Right? Those are different. The Rambam is not necessarily talking legally here. Right? He's talking theologically. Right? What constitutes Avodah Hashem? Right, that requires some kind of activity of something beyond the body, um, in order. Right, and it's more than just intention to commit the act. They have to require. You have to. You have to import meaning into the act um, by right through, um, by yourself. Otherwise, it's not a masa, either of Avodah Hashem or of legalism. Okay, so far, the uh, medieval world, and now we're going to jump to the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and see how Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, now we're in risk, um, dealt, with the, uh, dealt with the same kinds of issues. Okay, so he begins, uh, he begins by quoting the two Rambams we noticed, um, we noticed before, um, um, right? And he says, there seems to be a contradiction between those two Rambams, because in chapter four, the Rambam just said, if you don't have Kavanah, then you don't, right? Then you, then you have not, which seems to suggest it applies to all of the tefillah, uh, right? Kol tefillah, kol tefillah she'ina b'chavana, e'ina tefillah. V'yimitpalel below chavana, chuzer mitpalel b'chavana. If you die without chavana, you have to go do it again. Okay, and furthermore, he says a radical thing. If you find yourself unable to have chavana, says Ramam, you're not allowed to pray because it's all going to be a bracha levatala. Well, it's interesting because without kavana, you can perform a you can perform a massive desecration of, of the of Hashem Hashem, but you can't fulfill a mitzvah. Okay, however, in the Rambam chapter ten says, if you daven without kavana, you should return and pray with kavana. But he doesn't say anything about not praying with not starting to pray unless you have kavana. And then he goes on to say, and if you have kavana in the first, the first bracha, that's enough. What? What happened to the other eighteen brachot? Okay, so this is the contradiction that um, Rav Chaim Brisker uh, set out. He's not, the, you know, far from the first one to raise this contradiction. Um, and if you want, there's a very fine book uh, by my friend uh, Rabbi Dr. Seth Kadish called Kavana, uh, which I highly recommend to go through this and basically every other issue about the con- the questions of Kavana in the context of Fila. Full disclosure, I wrote the um, first disclosure. I, I get I get thanked in the introduction, and I'm and for Bringing Rechaim to his attention, I am quoted in footnote 20, I think, or something. It was the first book I was quoted in, so I have an attachment to it, but it's a really, it's a really good book. Okay, so here's what Rechaim says. Okay, it's a classic brisk. There are two dinim. There are two kinds of kavanah in tefillah, um, right? When, and the Ramam is talking about, even though he uses the word kavanah in both Perikdal and Yud, he uses 
what looks like identical terms, kivenetli um right? Here is koltfi lashe na b'chavana. Here is the level of kivenetli bo. Right, we could try to think about whether the word libo matters or not. Really, they're talking about two completely different kinds of kavana. Bachat, kavana shal perush hadvarim. One of them is what the words mean. Then it tells you something that will be mysterious unless you learn like a brisker. V'yasodahu din kavana. Okay, I'll just try to figure out what does that mean, v'yasodahu din kavana. Um, okay, looking at the way you're looking. I think I should do this. Okay. Um, Okay, v'sheinit sheichavein shu omed b'tefilah lifnei Hashem. Okay, so Rav Chaim fundamentally divides between the intellectual, right? Divides between the mind and the soul would be my would be my take, um, whether he buys into that kind of metaphysics or not. One kind of kavanah is what the words mean, and the other kind of kavanah is experiential. You have to recognize that you are standing before God. Okay. So now he's right, and this is what the Rama says in Parakdal, where the Rama defines Kavanah. That has nothing to do with Kavanah, let's say it doesn't say anything about the mitzvah. There's nothing legal at all. Right? It's a state of consciousness. Okay, so that's Rav Chaim's opening introduction is there are two different kinds of Kavanah, and now we have to put another kind of Kavanah on a list of five. Right? We had Kavanah Mitzvah, we had Kavanah Latzeta Mitzvah. Now he says, right, there's a kind of kavanah which means having the right kind of religious experience. Realizing that you're all made lift Hashem. Now he says, Okay, there's that line again. This kavanah is not kavanah in the legal sense. As opposed to being an intention that is imposed on the action, this is an intention which is definitional to the action. Okay, in um, in classic philosophic terms, this kind of kavanah is an essential and not an accidental attribute. Right, you can't right, you can't have tefillah without it. Right, so now watch what happened in the medieval world. Right, there was, right, somebody talked about what kind of kavanah do you need to turn this into a maaseh. Rachayin doesn't doesn't talk about what kind of kavanah you need to turn this into a maaseh. He says what kind of kavanah do you need to perform this ma'aseh. Some ma'asim include kavanah as part of what they are. So if your heart is not um, is not emptied or turned, depending which way you want to translate that, Deborah and I just had a whole long discussion about this. And you're not conscious of yourself as standing before God and praying. It's not that you haven't performed an action. Is that you haven't performed the action of prayer. And it says, if you're mitasek, uh, right, not because of a general failure of action, but because of a specific failure, if you don't have this kind of kavanah, then what you did was say words and not pray. Okay, so this kind of kavanah, he says, that obviously applies to all of tefillah. Because if you're mitasek, you haven't prayed at all. But it's not because you lack your because your body lacks kavanah hamaseh. It's because you lack right the action didn't happen. Right? The action of prayer is intrinsically an action that involves consciousness. And it's as if you skipped those words, he says. Okay, and obviously, in terms of fundamentally whether you prayed or not, he says, all 19 brachot matter. So you have to have this connection for all 19 for all 19 um 
all 19 brachot, as opposed to, he says, um, what about, what, what about, uh, knowing what the words mean, knowing what the words mean does not change, right? This is a you know, strong claim about tefillah. You can have the experience of standing before God and praying without having the faintest idea what words you are saying. And so there we have an accidental attribute. They required kavanah, and, but how much kavanah do they want to require? Now we should be careful, right? This kind of kavanah is just what the words mean. So this also has nothing to do with intention to fulfill the mitzvah. It doesn't even necessarily have intention to relate to performing religious action. You just have to understand what words you're saying. So that, right, is not any, that, that, is, a, an, an, that is something which is entirely possible for whoever decides kavanah to say that, okay, all that really matters is that you understand what you're saying for the first bracha, or that's all we can realistically expect, whatever it may be, right, that's a totally different thing. Okay, now he goes further. And he says, Okay, he says that really, even within what he calls Din Kavana, so now we can know what he means by Din Kavana. Din Kavana, uh, right, Din Kavana for him means um, Kavana as the, uh, Kavana as the, um, as the, as an accidental attribute, as something which is added on to an already existing action. As opposed to, right? As opposed to something which defines the action. That's not a din in kavanah. That's a din in the masa. Um, okay, right. Sam's point is a good point. That I don't know. I don't know which. Uh, right. So, right. That I think. I think. I think he that he agrees with uh, with Sam's point in the chat. That right. That you. It's not that you first understand the words and then you have you understand your. You have to have both all the way through. Before you start praying, you have to realize that you're standing before God. And then you also have to know what the words mean for the first bracha. Right? It's not, I don't think it's an order. I think it's that they, you start off with both and then you can lose the, the, the meaning of the words after a while. So he says, but really there are two kinds of kavanah that are din kavanah. One is din kavanah shemichavein lasot ha-mitzvah. Ravimidin kavanah shalakola mitzvot, tekaimela mitzvot srikot kavanah. Okay, so he, as opposed to Rabbi Avraham ben Arambam, uh, Rabbi Avraham ben Arambam assumes that the standard Psak is misvot ein srichot kavana, and now I have to figure out why right why matzah is different. Rechaim says the standard rule is misvot srichot kavana. What I have to explain is why doesn't tefillah require kavana throughout, or or kriyachma. So the answer is because the standard din of misvot srichot kavana, which is also an accidental attribute, is intention to perform a religious act. Intention to perform a religious act is not necessary to construct the action. But it is, in many cases, um, as the default is, it is a requirement in order to fulfill one's obligation. To fulfill one's obligation, you have to have intent to fulfill one's legal, one, what, to, fulfill, to fulfill one's obligation. Right? And that might be something that exists either as a specific kind of religious consciousness or a specific kind of legal requirement in order to fulfill the law. You have to have intent the law. You have to have intent for the law. But that is entirely different, right? Entirely the the intent to fulfill the mitzvah for Rechaim is an entirely different thing than religious consciousness. Religious consciousness is the experience of standing before God, and intent to fulfill the mitzvah just means, okay, I know I'm obligated to do this, and I intend to fulfill it. Not at all clear that you have to have any kind of experience associated with that at all. All you need is a, all you need is a kind of commitment. Okay? So, right, so there's Rechaim's um, uh, division. And now, right, so in the end he says, we can also add that since for the Rambam, the mitzvah of Tila is the Arisa, 
And everyone agrees that there is a Deraisa fulfillment of Din Torah, of Deraisa, even if they don't agree there's a Deraisa obligation. So therefore, Mighty says the rule of Mitasik, which is a rule about all mitzvot, you're not Yotzei if you're Mitasik, that applies to all Torah, so it applies to Phila also, right? And so too, Mitzvot Sri Kavanah, which applies to all mitzvot, right? So that will also be a rule, uh, right? A rule that that um, that applies to Tfilah as well. Um, and, um, but meaning of the words, that's the requirement specifically in Tfilah. So then, even in Tfilah, that's only a rabbinic. Um, only rabbinic commitment, and the rabbis can make it apply as much as, as, um, as more as more as you want. So Chaim ends up saying that there are three kinds of kavanah in davening. There's knowing what you're saying. That's just a rabbinic super a super super imposition imposition, right? There's already halacha called tefillah. There's a derisa obligation, or at least a fulfillment of tefillah, and that in, right, and the, and the rabbi said, you know what? That mitzvah derisa tefillah. When you do it, you should also um, right, you should also um, know what the words mean. But it's okay if you know it for the first pasuk. Then, tefillah is like any other mitzvah. So all mitzvah, in order to fulfill obligations, you have to have intent to fulfill the obligation. It might be that if there are mitzvot that can be fulfilled without obligation, right, they're just, right, so then maybe you don't need to come out to fulfill an obligation, you, right, it's, right, it's enough to just do it. Right, it's an interesting question, according to the Rambam, whether, right, for tefillat nidava, do you have to have any kind, any of that kind of kavanah at all? I know that I'm, I know that I'm doing the mitzvah of tefillah, probably not. And then there's an additional thing which he says these are kavanah. This is a kavanah which defines the action, and prayer is something where the action takes place in the consciousness, in the soul, if you will, and therefore, if nothing is taking place in the soul, there's no action. You just read words. Okay. Sorry, I want to. Yes, sir. I'm just quick question. That that all makes sense, but um, wouldn't you be able to fulfill the Doraita just by praying even a little bit? So wouldn't the first bracha shouldn't the first bracha uh, be enough to fulfill your Doraita obligation? Might be, might be. Yeah, I think talking about what the Rambam really thinks could be in the Rambam. That's enough. True, could be, and so maybe that's enough. Even Doraita, right, for him in the end, could be. Okay. So now I wanted to put together to give you two other Rav Chaim's to um, compare to this. The one is in, in Hilchot Tefillin and Mezuzah, the Ram addresses the question of um, in a Sefer Torah, right? So there are there's all the other words, and then there's the names of God. Uh, right, the names of God have different halachos than um, than the um, than the other words of Torah, and secondly. It depends, right? There are different halachos as to what happens if the wrong person writes the Sefer Torah. Okay, so the um, so the Ram is interested. is interested here. The halacha is that a Sefer Torah shekstavu min, a Sefer Torah is written by some kind of extreme heretic that we burn, but a Sefer Torah written by a Gentile, we just bury. That suggests that a Sefer Torah written by a Gentile is right has kedusha. Now, why is that? If we require certain kinds of kavana. In order to make a the letters Yudke Vavke or Elokim, whatever it may be, into a Shem Hashem, the answer is the Nehi Midin Chalot Lishma. So he says a non-Jew who is not obligated in the midst of writing a Sefer Torah cannot make a, sefer, a kosher Sefer Torah. 
because right? he can't accomplish that right? he can't create the legal action of writing a Sefer Torah for the sake of the mitzvah of the Sefer Torah. Right? That's right. That can only be accomplished by somebody who is in a state of obligation. But he says, even though we say that the Sefer Torah is puzzle because it was not written lishma, because right, we're going to assume that non-Jews cannot write a Sefer Torah lishma. That doesn't have anything to do with the question of whether the names of God in the Sefer Torah were written with religious intention, which is all it takes to imbue them with non-legal holiness. Right? If, when he wrote these words down, he intended God, right? So what, so what he says, Okay, so now we have an interesting claim, right? In some cases, Right back by Tefillah, we said there are intentions which are necessary to make something part of an action. And here we say there are intentions which are intrinsically part of the action. We can't separate it. So if somebody wrote this, wrote this word and said, I intend by these letters the name of God, you can't pull any kind of legal, right, legal, legal um, hocus pocus to say it's not the name of God. This is the name of God, right? What they did was the action of writing a name of God. Right? So this is the reverse. And therefore, he says, there's nothing you can do to say that a, the name of God written by a non-Jew doesn't have Kedusha. And so it requires Geniza, like anything else, even though the Sefer Torah will not be kosher because it was not written with legal intention. Okay, so there's the Ram again saying that there are certain kinds of... Um, now, we could talk about, right? You know, the, the, um, the next question will be, what happens if somebody writes the name of God, intending it as the name of God, but also believing that the, right, also not believing in the God whose name he's writing. So if you think that this is just a din, that what the Ram is talking about here is, is parallel to what he calls perush hamilim in tefillah, so then, okay, this is still a name of God. I don't think that's what he means here, right? Because perush hamilim is not intrinsic to the Masa. I think what he means is the, the equivalent of the Kavanah being made Lifne Hashem, right? If at the time somebody is writing this, they intend by this a God who exists, then it has Kedusha. I don't think that he would think the same thing about somebody who wrote this and had no, um, and had no, um, no religious consciousness, um, even though they understood that the referent of this name is, the, is a being whom there is a right, that that there, that Jewish culture believes in, right? I think right. I think we have to play that out all the way uh, all the way through. And I want to give you one other example, then I'll stop and take questions, which is in the reverse. We're talking about um, we're talking about uh, the, the the rule of the Barshinamid Kavain in terms of Isurim. Right. So there's a difference between the Barshinamid Kavain. Uh, we, you can take the position for our purposes, the Varshan Emit Kaven, an action which you did not intend and is not inevitable, let's say. Um, right? So in other Eastern, let's assume that, that you are Chayev. If you did an action and the action has outcomes that are reasonably seen as a result of your act, reasonably foreseeable as intense intentions of your act, and in fact you foresaw them, but they were not what you wanted. Okay, so the, so let's assume that in general you're chayev, right? You do something, right? You do an action, that action has a consequence. You foresee that consequence. You would rather that consequence didn't happen, 
you're still responsible. But on Shabbos, you're not. All right, so Rechaim is trying to explain the difference between Shabbos and everything else. So he says, All right, Everything is dependent on your action. Even if it's a you know what's going to happen. And you're, and you're engaging in the action intentionally. But in general, it depends on your intention, whether you intend this or not. That's the general rule. Uh, that's the general rule in halacha. However, he says, When it comes to din lechet machshevet, ain't you so din to klal bekavanah of ratzon? But in terms of Shabbos, there's a special halacha called Malachis Machshevis. And Malachis Machshevis is a special halacha that to violate Shabbos, you need specific, right? You need you need you need a more specific intention. And without, right, without Malachis Machshevis, so then you haven't done the action at all. Because in terms of violating Shabbos, he says, the action of violating Shabbos has to take place in your mind. And not just only, not just only, not just only in your action, right? So here you see the exact same distinction playing out in the realm of Averot as well as in the in the realm of Mitzvot. Okay, so wrapping up, um, what I'm arguing is that a um, that the Brisker analysis of the category of Kavanah. First of all, I wanted to set out a methodological framework, right? So what you engage in as a Brisker is you try and look at every use of a term and to try and specify its meaning as precisely as you can, as opposed to assuming as your default that parallel terms mean parallel things, even in the same, right, even if the same phrase shows up in what looks like superficially the same context, right, the brisker approach is that every term has to be analyzed as rigorously as possible for a specific Conceptual context, um, as methodologically, right? So we can so we can see just by looking last class, just by looking at Rashi, um, right? We emerged with five different meanings of the word kavanah in the context of a single, in the context of a single sugya. Then, right, trying to show that the kind of um, questions they're addressing are very much um, questions of um, you don't you can think of them as purely legal questions, but I think it's better to think of them as questions that have uh, metaphysical components, um, questions of uh, questions such as what is the nature of a religious act, uh, right? Distinctions between my distinctions between mind and soul and consciousness, right? All those, right? All those, right? Uh, right? Does the body have personality? Does the body not have personality? All those sorts of things, I think, are um, fundamentally the same questions Rechaim is addressing. Even if the Rav would have argued that Rechaim, you know, in no way. Right, all he's trying to do is define the act of prayer. He's not interested in the metaphysics right, of what prayer accomplishes, which is true. He doesn't address anything about what prayer accomplishes. Uh, right? he, doesn't, he doesn't talk about God at all. Um, but he does, but he, he does talk about certain, a certain kind of religious consciousness being definitional to certain kinds of religious acts. And you can see that that's a, that that is a, um, that's a theme running through because he, right, because he analyzes it in every context, he analyzes the fundamental question, which sorts of intentions are essential to the definition of the act, and which sorts of, which, which sorts of mental acts, mental, mental states are definitional to action, and which sorts of mental states are, are superimposed on action. Right? So, these are, right, so the, these are fundamentally the same kinds of questions 
I think you would ask if you were attempting to provide a, uh, a formal philosophic account of, um, of halacha. And so, I won't, so I'm hoping that that is a way of, um, even if you're not into, uh, you know, if, you're, if you don't just enjoy the, the Torah Lishma, uh, right? if you have a different agenda, so understand that brisk is a very powerful, uh, very powerful tool. Okay, and now I will um, take questions. Um, Mary Copper, um, yep. with respect to the uh, writing of the Sefer Torah, um, uh, do you think that Rav Chaim would differentiate between, let's say, something like Origen writing the Hexapla, right? So where he, where you have a, uh, a Christian who believes in God writing the text of the Torah, um, versus, let's say, a professor of archaeology or something who happens to be copying down, um, um, you know, a text just so that we have a record of what, um, of what, uh, or, you know, of, of what, something that was written previously. Um, so if I had to guess, I would say that, you know, the, the, there's two kinds of questions. What would Rav Chaim say? And there's what, what is implied by Rav, Chaim, by Rav Chaim's analysis. Right. Um, right. So what's it, the question that you have to ask is, you know, do right, you know, which is a you know, much bigger question than we're addressing it, it here is, do Christians believe in the same God we do? Right, right. How specifically? How specifically? Right now, if I were really fancy, I could say, you know what? Maybe there are people for whom the word Elohim is Kodesh, but the word Yudkevavke isn't, because they share our abstract notion of divinity. But they don't have the proper, right, but they don't believe that Yudkevavke is the God of the Jews, right? So that, right? So the question of whether Christians believe in the same God we do, you know, is a matter of. Uh, of, yeah. of, of some controversy, although I think not so much in the Middle Ages. I think that in the Middle Ages, everyone agreed that Christians fundamentally worshipped the same God we did. But we have to remember, you know, the start is that, you know, is that the people who worshipped Dei Galazahav, according to the Rishonim, you know, worshipped the same God we did. Right? Zarah means false worship of the right God, of the true God. So it doesn't mean you don't, right? it doesn't mean you don't have God in your head, right? So you be careful, careful about that. Um, what yeah. we would say nowadays, um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, I, th I think that most, you know, I think that, you know, that if you tend to be on the liberal side, you tend to think that all monotheists worship the same God and all people who claim to be monotheists should be taken at their word. And so then you'd probably say, put it in Geniza. Uh, right, I think that's the, I think that, I think what I say is I think Rav Chaim allows for that distinction very well, explicitly. What, what he would say specifically about origin I don't know enough about origin to know what the, the, the theology. No, but what I'm saying is, if if you don't say that, I mean, I, I it, it would seem to me that the professor who is writing is not intending it to be is not intending it to be referring to God. He's just intending what he's writing to be a record of what was done previously. That's correct. Right. right? So it seems like according to that, um, there isn't a case in the world. If you if you think that let's say Christianity is not that Christians don't believe in, in the same God as us, then there really isn't any case in which you would have a non-Jew writing a Torah in which you would have to uh, bury it. Sure. Um, I mean, why not? Unitarian Universalist, Benoach. Okay, fine, fine. So as long as you accept that there's, a, but but uh, in the times of, in the times of Rav Chaim, I'm not sure if there were. Unitarian uh, Universalists, okay. Unitarian Universalists probably start. They're always, there have always been, you know, when you say Christians, right, there have always been a wide diversity of range. And there are always some who are more plausibly monotheist than others. And you can right, you can take your position, uh, right? And I should say that the the question whether they're monotheists, 
may not be the same question as whether they're of the Avodah Okay, so maybe a better, actually, you know what, maybe a better case would be, let's say, a, um, uh, well, I, I don't know. So there's the case of the min, right? But So what, what, would, you, what would happen if you had like a, um, uh, a Karite or a, or a Samaritan writing a Sefer Torah? No question that you have to be going, is it? I think. Okay, but what was the case where you have to burn it? Um, that would be a, would that that would be, that would be a min, right? So, right. So the min, you know, we would assume that a min in that case really means an, an apostate, and it's somebody who converted to a different a different religion, which we don't perceive as mon, as monotheistic. Okay, so like an early Christian, maybe. Could be again. You know, I I, you know, I have my own positions about Christianity and halacha, and you know, and, and I think that that you know that that while I have my own position about classical Christianity, that doesn't necessarily you know every every group is different. Uh, right, every theology deserves to be judged on its own merits. Um, so I would not, uh, I, I would not wish to make generalizable statements. I am confident that there are many non-Jews to whom, right, for who could write a Sefer Torah, and I would recognize their God as their their God is sufficiently sufficiently identified with mine that you would have to be going as it. Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, you're sacred. It's talking Muslims, right? Yep. But, right. At least for you know, at least for Elohim. And I tend to think, right, you know, the, the fancy distinction I'm, t- I'm making to Elohim and Yudke Vavke, I'm not aware of anybody previously in Halakha making it. Um, so I'd be interested to see, you know, it's the kind of thing that I could imagine um, some of the recent Sephardi um, Rav Rashid you know, in getting, getting involved in that. Um, right? That's, that some of them say very interesting things about issues like that, and I'm not just not familiar with what they wrote. But in my limited knowledge, nobody has tried to make the distinction I, that I, I tried to make. So do you think that if, let's say, a Muslim wrote a Quran, I don't know if there's a mention of God's name in the Quran, but uh, presumably, and I don't know if it matters whether it's in Hebrew or not, but let's say you had a Muslim write a Hebrew translation of the Quran, and it happened to mention, you know, Elohim or something, then, then that, would you say that also would have to be um, buried? For a Chaim, it would be a violation of Los Asun Kain Lashem Lekechem, the Chorah. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Right. I don't know, but I would think so. Also, you know, I have not seen that. You know, people talk about the question generically. You know, we talk about the Yale logo, right? And the, uh, right? And, you know, and, and the New York Times printing things like that. I haven't seen the question specifically with regard to Qurans uh, or, uh, or, or, uh, or, or Bibles. Interesting question. I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, there, okay. There, that might not be with the intent. Well, wait, is, is there God's name in Yale? So, Yale? It has it has good KFK, doesn't it? Uh, isn't it Urim? But no, I think the Yale logo is something worse. I don't remember. Okay, so but wouldn't logo. that but wouldn't that be more akin to the uh, uh, to the case of a professor or something, right? Somebody who's just copying. That depends. Right? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know. You know what? What if you know? What if it's you know at at Harvard, right? Uh, when um, I'm blanking out his name now. That's a I apologize, the Conrad Professor of Christian Morals, uh, Pastor Gomes, right? Peter Gomes. Peter Gomes, right? So when he, I'm sure, when he, you know, when he used things like that, that he, that he had every intention to refer to, refer to a real God because he wanted to preserve the days when Harvard was still a religious institution. Right, but if somebody just shows a picture of the Yale logo in the newspaper, right? That so that be... probably isn't. That's correct. Yes. Okay, right. That probably isn't. Right. I, and always the question, you know, is whether it's the Kavanaugh of the printer or right, right. That's always right. That's always the uh, you know the 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 you know the printer the 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 
the person running the printing machine, right? The person who specifically pushed the button on the computer, right? It's very hard to, to figure out questions of Kavana and Seamus nowadays. Okay. The, uh, by the way, I think the, the, the Yale logo is, is uh, Orium Vitumim. Doesn't have, one of the logos has something worse than that. I don't know, I don't remember offhand. We'll look at it later. Okay. Right. I thought it was Yale. Uh, okay. Other questions? Uh, okay. Well, I guess there are no other questions. Thank you all very much. Um, and uh, I guess I'll see some of you tomorrow and some of you in the summer. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Have a great day, everybody.